Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. From a process perspective, at a technical perspective, you know, how do you do this when you're when you're this sick? How do you do this when everyone you're working with is all around the world? And then how do you do this when the people you're filming themselves, like the, they themselves have limitations and the act of filming them actually hurts them. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 41. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. About seven years ago, for the first time in my career as a filmmaker, I began applying for grants for my documentary film projects. It was a pretty strange, surreal at times, um, certainly a brand new process that I'd really been putting off for, for a long time. And not because I was afraid of the work that would be involved or, or, or the amount of writing it would require. Uh, I love working and I, I love writing actually. But, but I was feeling pretty overwhelmed and even, dare I say, intimidated by the thought of, of actually applying for, for a grant. Um, I felt like an imposter. Who was I, Chris Parker's, to be, you know, applying for funds from a grant-making institution? I mean, only smart and sophisticated people did such a thing, right? You know, degrees in botany or organic chemistry. You know, they're, they're the people that did such a thing. And, and and I had a degree in communications media, and I had a 2.8 GPA through my college career. <laughs> This was not accreditation that was that was going to jump off of the page for anyone, um, and certainly not to those, uh, you know, the mysterious elite people that are that are like hidden in the background below some esteemed academic institution, you know, surrounded by thousands of books written by you know thousands of their esteemed colleagues. I mean, I was going to be laughed at for what I was trying to do, which was, you know, to get someone to give me some money to help me do, you know, some random film about goats and their once-in-a-lifetime journey they make in the mountains of Nepal. However, as I would later find out, the goats are exactly what got me the money. So coming up, I want to help you better understand some of the grant writing process and you know who those mysterious people are that are behind the decisions to award the grants and also offer up some real applicable ways in which you can increase your chances of getting that first grant. Over the past few episodes, I've been asking for your help regarding the ratings and reviews area in iTunes. You know, getting more five-star ratings and reviews from you guys, it helps me become more visible on iTunes, which allows more people to get some of the, the documentary content that, that you guys have been enjoying, you know, which creates more chances for that networked community of documentary filmmakers I'm always trying to trying to facilitate. You know, it's something I'm trying to achieve with every show, every email, every tweet. I was hoping to appeal to your kindness and generosity, which is my way of really saying light a fire under your butt, you know, by asking you to take 30 seconds of your time to give me a quick ratings and review. 
I realize that a number of you have busy lives and you probably listen to me while you're commuting to work or, or you're at the gym or maybe you're mowing your lawn. I get it. That's that's part of the beauty of podcasts. That's exactly how often I'm listening to podcasts while I'm doing some other activity. Usually I'm, I'm driving somewhere, right? I mean, who has time to sit down and just listen to a podcast? Actually, I do that late at night sometimes, but I realize I'm probably in the minority. But maybe if I could be so bold as to ask you to set a time or, or some kind of reminder so that the next time you get on your computer or mobile device, take a minute to go to iTunes and search for the documentary life, click on the ratings and reviews tab, and leave me a five-star rating and a few words for review. I'd really appreciate it. I bring you the documentary life weekly. I supply you with valuable documentary filmmaking and documentary life content. At least I hope I do. <laughs> I bring you weekly documentary industry guests. All of this is a free service to you. So again, please consider taking a minute to go to iTunes and, and leave me a five-star rating and review. Thank you, Doc Lifer. The spring before I was to be leaving for filming in Nepal, I held the first of, of two fundraisers that I would do that year. It was a, it was a pretty small, smallish kind of gathering, maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 or so people. And I had recently returned from a scouting trip to Nepal. In fact, I'd used half of a grant to basically pay for that trip. It had actually been my first ever grant award. It was from a group known as Regional Arts and Culture Council, or, or simply RAC. Uh, anyone in the Portland, Oregon area in the U.S., they'd be fami you know pretty familiar with this grant awarding institution they do amazing thing for arts in in Oregon communities i wish for these types of institutions and for this kind of recognition you know of the importance of art in communities throughout the us and even globally though it's it's i guess it's worth noting that communities in in countries like canada australia and and so many in europe are already ahead of the curve on this at this particular gathering, I'd meet a gentleman by the name of Ian McCluskey. You probably recognize from his name from an earlier episode of TDL. He was the founder of Northwest Documentary and, and the director of a handful of, of very well-received documentary films. Northwest Documentary, had, had they'd loaned us a projector so that I could show some footage from that recent scouting trip that I'd referred to. And I was hoping he'd be in attendance because I'd heard so much about Ian. I'd admired his films, and, and, and I wanted to learn more about Northwest Doc and, and what they did. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, he'd had a commitment out of town, but was he was hoping to get back in time to attend you know this fundraiser. And, and he would end up coming by towards the end of the event. In fact, he, at one point, he would approach me and he introduced himself and I thanked him for the loaner and, and we talked briefly about my recent trip to Nepal. He then proceeded to surprise me with some really, really valuable insight into the grant awarding process that I, honestly, I've forever been grateful for. You see, unbeknownst to me, Ian had been a part of the team that had helped get Journey to Kathmandu selected for a RAC grant. And, and what he told me, it's something that, again, it surprised me, and it really kind of shows my ignorance to the whole grant process at that time. And, and so I'm happy to now pass this information on to you, fellow Doc Lifer. So, so please forgive me if you already know about this, but, but I'm betting that a segment of you, you'll have had the same impression that I did about how grants got awarded. And, and so this is going to be really good information for you. I had just kind of assumed that I how it worked was there was a handful of, you know, select highly uh, respected and qualified individuals and they all got together, sat in a room and, and all talked about the various applicants and, and their applications. And then they voted for who they thought would be, you know, were the best ones. But Ian explained something a bit different, a bit more fascinating. 
And it gave me more appreciation and hope, really, for how some of these things can work. Basically, and again, this is in the case of this particular grant awarding institution, RAC. I can't speak for others, though I, I have certainly come to learn that many do, in fact, you know, operate in very similar fashions. Basically, what happens is this. Prior to the awarding vote date, there are a number of groups that have been assembled, and they've you know, basically been given X amount of grant applications. They go through these applications, again, prior to this official sit-down, and, and they whittle them down to a handful of applicants that, that they feel best represent the mission of the RAC institution. They will then take this handful of applicants, and they will be representing or, or advocating for them on the actual vote day. Essentially, on that day, each table will go through, and they will make a case for why an applicant should be given a RAC award why they should be given an award, and the amount they should be awarded for. From here, the discussion is basically opened up to the room, and eventually they'll vote yay or nay for, for a project. Now, according to Ian, Journey to Kathmandu was one of the projects that was kind of up in the air. It was on the fence for a lot of people. It sounded like people, they were down with the documentary project and the idea of it but they were unsure how it met the criteria of art emanating from, from this five-county area around Portland um, where Rack basically exists, since the film would be about and shot in people in Nepal. The argument for this was that while, sure, the story didn't emanate from Portland or the surrounding area, the filmmaker, myself, did, of course, reside in the area, and he would, in, in fact, be editing and exhibiting the film in the area. Now, this next part that I'm about to share with you, it's something that to this day, it still makes me smile. The way that Ian explained it to me was that people were still on the fence about whether or not to help fund Journey to Kathmandu, and suddenly somebody blurts out, look, we gotta fund the goats, which apparently sent the crowd into laughter. And according to Ian, this statement, look, we gotta fund the goats, is what swung the vote in favor of Journey to Kathmandu. Now, I tell you this not to make light of the grant hoarding institution or their process. Of course not. You know, or the extremely hard work that, that we all put into the making of our grant applications or certainly the diligent work that goes into the awarding of the, of the grants. I tell you this one because I wanted you to see that it, it's not just a handful of people that choose grants from a stack of applicants. Two, that in fact it can be a committee situation, you know, where groups of people are literally advocating for our projects. And three, that the people who are granting these awards, they're humans too. You know, they're moved to tears and laughter and anger, whatever, just like we all are. And they like goats just like almost everyone I know does. Now, an element to this particular whole grant application that must be a part of any documentary filmmaker, you know, who's looking to secure a grant is a video that represents the work that they plan to do. It was certainly integral to the success of, of my rack grant application. I have to believe that the, that the visuals of goats in the mountains, they were what compelled someone to yell out, we got to fund the goats in probably what's an otherwise pretty serious setting. And oh, by the way, my video teaser, it didn't even consist of actual footage per se. How's that? Well, how could it really? I didn't have any footage. You know, I was trying to secure funding to go shoot the film. I didn't have film shot. And this footage would be shot in a place thousands of miles away. It wasn't like I could just, you know, oh, I don't know, open my door or go to the zoo and wrangle some goots for a shoot. 
I suppose I could have purchased and built something from stock footage, sure, but but that certainly wasn't going to feel right. And not to mention, I didn't have the funds to do this. So I knew I knew I'd have to be creative. That's what we artists do when we don't have, you know, the necessary funds to do something, right? What I did is I took a bunch of still photographs that I had actually shot a couple of years prior when I first was trekking in Nepal. It was actually when and, and where I came up with the idea for the film in the first place. I built a handful of textual cards and I intercut these between, you know, these beautiful shots of, of the Himalayas in Nepal and then hundreds of goats traversing these mountains. And I cut this whole thing over this really cool kind of mysterious electronic song from, from the artist Benoit Piolard. And he, in fact, he donated the song for the teaser. And I essentially, out of all this, I built the story of, of these goats, the goats' journey. And, and just before the sort of the climactic ending, if you will, I laid one final card that I think it read something about in, inviting you to take a journey with us or something like that. I don't remember the exact verbiage, but but the idea was, you know, to create some sort of wanting from the viewer, right? You know, I was enticing whoever would, would see this video to want to see more of the film or hopefully even better, contribute to the cause. Make no doubt, I made the teaser very much keeping potential funders, whether through grants, fundraisers, um, or private donors, uh, very much in mind. Um, in fact, I'll get a link to this original teaser for Journey to Kathmandu up in the show, up in the show notes for this episode. So as you can see, it is quite possible to create a video regardless if you've actually shot footage for your project yet or not. And I promise you, you will have much better luck including some kind of video in your grant proposal. It's a must, I'm, I'm telling you. In fact, most times it's required to submit some kind of your work that represents you as a filmmaker, even if you don't have an actual video for the project that you're applying for. People want to see what you're all about. And they want to see if you can pull off what you're telling them that you can pull off. Another piece of advice that was given me early on was that I should be dialoguing with a grant awarding institution well before the application is even due, or maybe even before the application um, begins, the application process begins. The idea being that the more dialogue you have with them, the more that they are made aware of who you are. And so by the time that they receive your application, well, they won't necessarily just pull yours aside. They at the very least, they'll be aware of you as a filmmaker, as well as perhaps already have some idea of your project. There are many ways in which you can do this. The easiest, most obvious is, is emailing the people that are heading up these grant submissions. They don't make the decisions later on about your proposal, but they are usually the head of such teams. Look for them, and they're often called grant officers. Look for the grant officers and their contact information. And you cannot be shy here, people. Don't be shy. I have found that the grant officers, they're very forthcoming with information. They're very willing to assist in any manner of questioning, and they're usually very prompt in doing so. You can email or, or, or make phone calls. Both are very effective. And if you don't actually have a burning question about your grant proposal, well, come up with one. I mean, don't ask them something like, I don't know, when is the deadline for grant submissions or something like that? You know, that's readily available information that's probably everywhere on the website. Don't ask them something that can easily be found on their on their fact sheet. That, that, that might annoy them, right? If nothing else, it may signal that you're a bit lazy for not looking for the info first. 
So try and ask them something that's a bit of a um, a bit of a, of a higher level or maybe just a more probing question. Give them something to remember you and your project by. And don't forget to include a quick mention of your project and your intention to apply for the grant. It's not cheesy at all to do this. You know, don't go into detail about your project. Certainly leave that for the grant. But do give them something so that they, you know, they may potentially make a connection to you and your project later on when it comes time for them and their and their team members to start pulling submissions. I can't stress enough how this it's an easy way to engaging with an organization and how this can they really benefit you and your project. Remember, they want to give these grants out and they want people to be engaging with them. That's why they're grant officers in the first place. They love you, Doc Lifer. Heck, I've, I've been able to continue emailing and, and update a couple of different grant officers that I've known over the years, like long after I was awarded grants through their organizations. They like to keep tabs on their awardees. They feel good about this, and it makes sense. They know that in some way they've contributed directly to the success of you and your documentary filmmaking career. So do not, do not be shy. The last thing I'll mention is that the first grant award, it's the hardest grant award. After that, it becomes easier. In some ways, it's not unlike the first film festival that you get into, often being one of the hardest to get into. Granting organizations, and film festivals for that matter, they want to make sure that they're associating themselves with worthy recipients. In our case, they want to know that we are going to do what we say that we are going to do, which is namely make a kick-ass documentary within the strictures of our proposed budget and in the timeline that we say that we're going to do it. Now, of course, there is there is some leeway here. You, you might not finish your film for a year or two or three, you know, after you've initially proposed to do so. That's OK. But but you do have to finish your film. That's a big deal for these guys. They need to see that that you are someone who fulfills their end of the bargain. You know, they've done their part. So you need to do yours. And if you've never completed your film, in essence, you're telling them that you're not reliable. I'm getting a bit off track here, but but later on down the road, when you apply for another grant, for instance, through through the same awarding institution for maybe another project, if they see that they've given you a grant in the past and you do, in fact, you know, see your part through, you complete the film. That's a big plus for them. You know, they will want to give to you again. You already got your foot in the door, right? Or no, I should say you already got yourself in the door with your first project. So they already like you and your work. And seeing that you successfully saw that earlier project all the way through, it says to them, you are worth their consideration and money. They can count on you. Also, other granting organizations, they really want to see that other organizations are giving money to your project. So whenever you've been awarded a grant, you will want to make sure that it's noted in all future grant applications for the same project. Again, not unlike the Film Fest circuit, these organizations, they like to see that others are involved with, with, your, with, with a project. It gives it more legitimacy in their eyes, as well as it, it gives them some security. They're thinking, hey, if, if IDA trusts these guys enough to give them this grant, then I feel like we probably should too. Does that make sense? But yeah, you know, getting that first one, it's kind of the keystone to getting the others. If done right, it can have a very positive domino effect. 
recently, a lot of you doc lifers have been reaching out to me, hoping for some more content around raising funds for your documentary film projects. Oftentimes, even specifically, you know, mentioning the writing of treatments and documentary proposals. While this segment isn't even the tip of the, you know, the proverbial uh, iceberg, I hope that it shed a little light for you on how these, how these granting organizations, how they sometimes think. I know that it was very helpful for me way back when, when I first had that conversation with Ian. Before moving on to the Doc Life or Community Question of the Week, I'd also just like to say that there is definitely more of this kind of content on the horizon for TDL. We will be having some doc industry people on the show soon to talk more about grant funding, writing proposals, and certainly other ways to raise funds for your documentary film. This week's Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week comes from Rich of HeartfireFilm.com. Rich is a pretty valuable Doc Lifer who I've been dialoguing with you know, via email and social media for quite some time now. HeartfireFilm.com is a great website that, that showcases Rich's filmmaking blog. It has film reviews there. Um, industry interviews, and Rich even has his own podcast there. He's a super engaged guy who's informed by uh, the filmmaking community and is also very supportive of others. In fact, he recently tweeted some support to another doc lifer, Erin, uh, who, who's set to make her first feature film as she travels this week to the country of Laos. So Rich wrote to me recently, Hi, Chris. Google is popping up a message saying this email might be a phishing email not sent by the address listed. Just wanted to give you an FYI since people are a little skittish now with the Equifax breach. Really looking forward to listening to the podcast. I just thought I should bring it to your attention. You're gaining momentum and I wouldn't want to see that stop. I hope it just ends up being on my end. Also wanted to say that you're doing a great service to the documentary film community. You have definitely helped me to up my game, especially with the new podcast discussing B-roll. Best regards, Rich heartfirefilm.com. And, uh, and Rich is referring in that last part there to the, to the B-roll segment that we did. Uh, I think it was the last episode, episode 40. Thank you, Rich, as always, for the kind and supportive words. I, I've appreciated the dialogue that we've had here over the recent, recent while. That truly means a lot to me and definitely keeps me going with this whole TDL thing. Furthermore, seeing you engage with other doc lifers in the way that you do, it really makes me proud and gives me the warm fuzzies. Creating, you know, this this networked and engaged community is, is precisely really my like my highest dreams, man. My highest dreams and intent for the documentary life. And and I continue every day to try and support and fulfill these aspirations. It's, you know, people like you simply fuel that. And and it gets me excited to do TDL every day, man. So so thank you for that. And also thank you for bringing this this the email thing to my attention. You know we're we're currently sending out our newsletter via Mailchimp, and, and and this is nothing against Mailchimp, but but oftentimes, all you guys who are using Google Google Mail as your as your as your mail service, unless you guys are dragging our newsletter email from the promotional tab to your inbox tab, um, it'll just keep showing up there. I know that's not what you're referring to, Rich, but my point is that these these mail services like Google, they've gotten pretty smart. Um, or maybe even too smart. So, so when, for instance, they see a piece of mail hit their server from a third-party service like Mailchimp or ConvertKit, um, they they tend to flag it because it's not coming from someone's personal account. I suspect that this is why you'll often see, you know, what the online marketing community refer to as a single or, or double opt-in. Um, it's you know when you first sign up to receive a free download or or in our case a newsletter. How the opt-in works is that you as as the person who signs up 
you, you immediately get an email that basically states that you must now click on a link that's within that email to, to confirm that you want to be, in fact, on that newsletter group. By doing this, you're, you're kind of giving an email service like Google the okay to be receiving emails you know, via the third-party service. In our case, it's, it's, it, we're currently using MailChimp. I know this because you know we're immersing ourselves these days in how all of this online thing really works. As a self entrepreneur, this is I, I realize this is online business 101. I, uh, but, but hey, I'm, I, I am learning, right? So thanks again for for alerting me to that, Rich. It, it helped me further my research and diligence, you know, with this whole TDL thing, which is really great. We'll most likely be instituting a single opt-in moving forward. Until then, if you have signed up for the Doc Life or weekly newsletter, but you haven't been receiving it for some reason, you should be getting them weekly. Um, check your spam or promotional tabs. And again, please drag it to your inbox and or may just make sure that your mail server knows that we are legit and that you do actually want to be hearing from us. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for the show, you can email me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris, C-H-R-I-S, at B-A-R-A-N-G, films.com. And you too could be highlighted on the next Stock Lifer Community Question of the Week. When we come back from the break, we'll head right into our conversation with the Doc Industry guest segment, and we'll be meeting Doc filmmaker Jennifer Brea, who has spent the better part of the last decade debilitated from sickness and has made an extraordinary film about it. When I first came up with the idea for the Documentary Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife, and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. Jennifer Brea, uh, welcome to The Documentary Life. I'm happy to have you on the program. I'm excited to talk about your film. The film is Unrest. Um, it's played Sundance, Sheffield, South by Southwest, as well as Hot Docs, and it happens to be having its U.S. theatrical premiere, um, well, this Friday, which is September 22nd here in the U.S., uh, in New York. In fact, I'm speaking with you while you are in New York. Um, good morning, and uh, thank you for being on the program, Jennifer. Good morning, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. 
So we will most likely spend the majority of our conversation, you know, having this idea of a shared conversation about about documentary film, uh, about about the filmmaking process, and, and in particular with your film Unrest. But but for my audience and for my listeners, we do need some context here, right? Jennifer, can you give us a brief description um, of what MECFS is and, and and how and when this happened for you? what that journey has been like leading up to the making of the film. It's getting hard to remember, but I think about uh, <laughs> six years ago, um, I was, my husband and I were traveling and we both got sick with uh, a virus and he got super sick and recovered. Um, and I didn't react the same way he did. Um, and a few weeks later I had a really high fever of 104.7 degrees. Right. And um, I thought I just had a really bad flu, uh, and once the fever broke, um, started to feel fine, and then got up and walked straight into um, a door frame, <laughs> and and that was the beginning of these sort of strange neurological symptoms. Mm. And for about a year, um, I would have these periods of time where, whenever I got, you know. A minor normal illness like a sore throat or or a cold, um, I would start having neurological symptoms, uh, and I got sick probably about six or seven times, and so I I started to think, okay, something is really wrong with my immune system. I, I've never had that um, gotten sick that frequently, and started going to doctors to try to figure out what was going on. And um, looking back, um, I was already having the symptoms of um, MACFS, although I didn't know what I had at the time. Yeah. So the cardinal symptom of the disease is something called post-exertional malaise and, and, or PEM, which basically means that, you know, we have some kind of metabolic limits and it's different for everyone, you know, day to day, week to week, and depending on where you are on the spectrum. But it basically means that if you exert yourself physically or cognitively, um, beyond essentially the rate limit of your mitochondria, um, you crash. And that means, yeah. um, you know, for me, that could mean um, ending up in bed, um, you know, fortunately now for a couple of days. Um, when I first got sick, it might mean ending up in bed for weeks or months. And, um, you know, sometimes unable to lift my head or even move. Um, and so, uh, but in those early days, I could... You know, I would, I, my, my limit was, you know, I would go on my usual 12 mile bike ride and only be able to make it to mile six. Mm. Um, or I would go skiing for a weekend and only be able to ski a black diamond on the first day and then not be able and be kind of laid up on the couch, not really able to move the second day. And I didn't right, know what was happening to me. Completely wiped out afterwards. Totally wiped out. I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I told myself that I was just aging. I was 28. And I'm like, I'm just getting older. This is oh, what man. it's like. Um, and it was because I would go to the doctor and, you know, they kept telling me over and over again, you're fine. Nothing's wrong. And it was because my test results, the test they were right. running, right. kept coming back normal. Um, and so I think looking back, I was, you know, I kept pushing past my limit, not knowing that I had a new limit. And eventually I get, got worse and worse and worse until I ended up completely bedridden. Having watched Unrest very recently, I'm struck by sort of the home footage, almost home footage diary feel that, that is, is sort of intercut throughout the film. My question for you, Jen, is that 
are you thinking when you were filming this, what was the idea behind the home footage aspect? Were you just keeping a record so you could show your doctors or, or friends or colleagues? And, 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 and if so, at what point did that turn into, Hey, I, you know what? I think I've got a, maybe a documentary film on my hands. My whole life I've been a writer and I always kept a diary and it, it was, you know, like a written diary. And for me, it was always a way to just, um, have a conversation with myself mm. and to try to process and figure out what I was thinking and what I was feeling. Um, and when I first became bedridden, um, I lost the ability to read or write. Um, and as someone who was doing a PhD, that was a really scary, scary thing. Um, and during this time as well, I, I was having this experience of being disbelieved by doctors yeah, right, of course. Um, <laughs> and was actually diagnosed with conversion disorder, which is, uh, the modern name for hysteria. Mm -hmm. And so I I needed a place to put that pain and that grief and that anger and that fear. And, um, but if I tried to like write literally a sentence of an email, um, I would pass out for four hours from the exertion. Mm. And so, um, something was going on with the language centers of my brain and a friend of mine suggested, you know, maybe one day you'll get better and you'll want to write about this, and you'll want to have had a record so you kind of know knew what was happening in the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. So just record yourself in whatever way is kind of easiest. Mm. Um, this is a friend who's also a writer, and I, so my iPhone was always there with me in my bed, and yeah. um, and so I started recording myself, and it was, you know, I think in part a way to express some of those feelings that I wasn't even ready to share um, with my husband, Omar, and, and couldn't really talk to anybody about and so it began that way. And then one day I um, was seeing a new doctor and was trying to explain, you know, um, last night I tried to get up out of bed and, you know, I, I had to go to the bathroom and then I came back and I collapsed and I couldn't lift my head and I don't know why that happens. Um, and these are actually um, some of the first images of the movie. Okay, right. And, you know, as I was saying this to him, he was just kind of writing on his chart and not really looking up at me. And I'd had this experience many times of like these strange symptoms that I literally don't have words for. Like words don't exist in the English language because they're so specific to this disease and they're they're things I've just never experienced before when I was healthy. Like I didn't have the words or rather I tried to have the words, but he would they would always translate into like headache or like pain like something super generic (laughs) um and so i took my cat my my phone out of my pocket and i said no look yes and the doctor looked and turned white and said to me you know oh my god i i don't know um i don't know what is happening to you but something is seriously wrong and you need an mri you need a spinal tap and so he started mobilizing yeah Um, And it just sort of struck me that, you know, in that moment that for some reason, when it comes to describing this condition, words fail and that maybe the visual image, right, is the way to tell the story that that was the beginning of me thinking, okay, like like a documentary could work in a way that a a book and other things people have ways people have expressed the story um, haven't. Um, And then it was really, I think, going online and meeting these other patients and starting to understand that. I didn't just have a rare disease, but that this was um, a situation affecting millions of people and that it had been going on for decades. It's an incredible story and it's a it's a story that matters. And I felt like I had uncovered this, you know, this this whole reality and this whole community and this whole history that I think, you know, for whatever reason, 
the broader world had forgotten about. And and so I just, I knew that it could be a film. I think that finding out, figuring out how to tell that story took much longer. But, it, but I think that's when I realized like the story is so important that it, it has to be told. From as early as I can remember, I wanted to swallow the world whole. Anything was possible. I just thought I would have more time. I don't know what I did to myself. I don't think I can get up off the couch. I feel like my brain is misfiring. Sometimes I wouldn't be able to speak. Wow. If you say too little, they can't help you. And if you say too much, they think you're a mental patient. The doctor would tell me, you're just dehydrated. <sighs> Everyone gets stressed. Then I went online and found thousands of other people just like me. Yeah, I'm completely bedridden. It's like I'm just watching my life disappear. I have ME, CFS, that's chronic fatigue syndrome. Historically, you can see illnesses very similar to this called many different things. I saw someone collecting the other day for ME. That's the one where I don't feel like going to work today. <laughs> it's gonna pass. <laughs> <laughs> Chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, I'm tired too. <laughs> when medicine has no answers for you, where do you turn? Oh my God. It's like the craziest high school science experiment you've ever done. Just because it's crazy doesn't mean it's wrong. You're looking at this camera. I started filming more and more people all over the world from my bed. Hi, Jenna. Hi. You know what it is about being observed? Is that people feel sorry for me. Baby, I'm so sorry. I have the strength of a mountain. And I've got the We're kind of both organizing a day of protest as well as organizing individual protests. All of those things, those really simple things. There's the sun. That life was gone, but here I have this new one. And I'll take all you throw at me. And I have to fight for it. Jen, that moment that you described of showing of showing the doctor the video footage after not being able to put it in words and not being able to make he or she understand um, through through uh, through yeah through verbal communication or maybe even written communication what you were experiencing, that moment of showing that you know the piece of video to that doctor is very powerful and it's very moving. Is that the sort of reaction? Is that what you're hoping to do ultimately with this film? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a lot of things I hope for with the film. I think, um, you know, I um, first and foremost, I, I you know, when, when I got sick, I think it it was this sense of feeling like when I got sick and then with something that no one else could understand <laughs> because there was no story. Like, yeah. and by that, I mean, you know, my whole life I'd always like read novels and watched movies as a way of, um, trying to, you know, explore the world essentially and understand, um, other ways of living and, and also to understand experiences that I was going through. I, I always used stories in that way. And I think yeah. stories, that's what stories are. They're, they're us telling stories about ourselves to our back to ourselves and that's what culture is. And I, and I mm. think I, I, you know, there's something really, um, um, I, like, I think 
um, erasing and, and, and isolating um, and painful about going through an experience this hard and this profound and this life-changing um, and not having that reflected to you in your culture. Mm. And that means not just the sense of like isolation on an individual level, but it means that your family can't support you. Your friends don't know what's going on. And so they, they don't gather around you in, in the way that they would if you, for example, were diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I also think that's a problem that a lot of people um, experience who are dealing with any kind of chronic illness because so many of our narratives are about, you know, the, the heroine who gets sick with something acute and like, you know, has a fever and the doctor rides on horseback in the middle of the night and like either she gets better right. and, and it's a, you know, it's, it's a, there's a happy ending or she dies and it's a transformative experience for right. the actual protagonist, you know? And so like, that's kind of, you know, the sort of, in some ways like the, the, you know, whether I knew it or not, that was sort of the assumptions I had in my head um, you know, from the film and, and, and mm, the, mm. and the books that I had read. And so the sort of chronic illness this idea of like, you get sick and then it goes on and on and on and on and it doesn't get better. And it might be better one day or worse the other. I don't even know that we, you know, are, we can tell somebody, um, um, get better soon, but I don't think we have a, a um, a, a frame for that. No. No. And so, and so I, I, I think that, you know, um, but, but at the same time, I, I wanted to believe that the world was still just and, and humane. And I, and I, mm. and I truly believed, and I still believe that a part of the problem is that it's so hard to see what this experience is unless you're living it. And so I wanted to sort of show it from the inside for doctors who see patients in their office when they are well enough to come to the office. And so don't know what their patients live, you know, at two in the morning when they're home alone. Um, but also for, for everyone, for patients, patients, for their family members, um, to have that sense of, of, of being seen. Um, and I, and I, and I, I think that is at the core of like the, the impulse to make the film. Right. But more broadly, I, I want people to, um, you know, I, I hope that it connects to people who are dealing with any kind of, um, uh, chronic illness or, or illness in general where um, because the film really tries to take a look at what uh, how illness shapes not just the patient's experience but also really the, the lives of everyone around them and how when someone you love gets sick this way it really, it really affects the whole family That's my husband Omar I met him when I was 25 <laughs> We were both at Harvard getting our PhDs. Three months later, I knew I wanted to marry him. I mean, sure, we all know nothing lasts forever. I just thought I would have more time. A lot of what you have said there resonates with me on 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 some personal levels, but it also resonates with me having just seen the film, and it makes me think of of something you say towards the end of the film that that really has has stayed with me, and it's you can disappear because someone's telling the wrong story about you. Yeah. And Jen, you're going to make sure that no one tells the wrong story about you. Yeah. No. Yeah. That was that was definitely the instinct, and I and I think um, in that moment when I was diagnosed with conversion disorder, there is a certain amount of power 
that a doctor has um, in the sense, even though like you go to 10 doctors and you get 10 different diagnoses, you know, like, uh, I mean, doctors don't agree and everybody looks at you from <laughs> the lens of where they sit um, in that moment, right? There's like this hierarchy and this, this kind of power differential. And there's very few spaces in the world um, anymore where, where we kind of have those types of relationships and it, and it, 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 it in our culture. And it, and it was just, such a strange thing to suddenly feel like this person has so much power over the access to the care that I can receive and what he writes on that chart is going to follow me for the rest of my life. A lot of this film, making the film was about talking back to that moment and um, and trying to in some ways um, rest back that control over um, you know, who, who gets to be the storyteller here, who gets to right. interpret the experience. And, um, and, and I, I, I think that so often patients, you know, it's like your patients are in some ways like supplicants or, you know, like, like, and I, and I think we have a different <laughs> way of thinking about it, but it, it, it um, it's, uh, it was, yeah, it was definitely about being able to, to tell a different version of a story and to tell the story that really millions of people have been living from their perspective. Okay, so let's 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 talk about how you would then start to assemble not 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 even just the documentary film itself but but how do you start assembling a team? So, I'm going to confess some things. So, it's just that in the beginning I knew absolutely nothing and yeah. um, it's been a very long journey and I I can talk a little bit about that. I've been really blessed to have yeah. gotten so much support and mentorship from I can't even count how many people in the documentary film community yeah. um, and looking back it's amazing what I've learned but um, you know I, I uh, the only person I knew who um, uh, uh, had any connection to film was my husband's sister who um, is now um, a, a graduate student um, uh, you know studying more kind of um, uh, you know, like film, film theory. Um, but yeah. she, she went to NYU and I, and so, um, and, and I, and I called her up and I was like, okay, I, I want to <laughs> do this, but like, I can't really hold the camera, not only cause it's hard to film myself, but also like literally like I can't pick up a camera, like it's too heavy for me. Um, and I need someone to help me, but I don't know how to oh. find them. And like, I was just kind of going in circles and like, who do I need? She's like, do you mean a DP? I'm like, yes, what's that? <laughs> like, that's like literally where I was starting from. And right. I, and so, um, but I, I had no way to find, um, crews and, um, um, and, right. and I didn't even know what a producer really did. Yeah, for sure. For and so, sure. um, I, I, I started posting on Craigslist. Um, that's like truly where I started wow, and, and yeah. it, and it, and, and so, um, I, um, and I, just to sort of, in case any of my team is listening, um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually find any of them on Craigslist, but it was, oh, it was okay. <laughs> part of a process of like how I started to try to crawl networks and, right. um, and, and, and start to meet people, um, and talk to different people in New York. And I just used Google and I found people's websites and I just sort of, you know, and, and a lot of folks were like, hi, I'm in New Jersey. I'm in bed. I'm. I'm trying to do the same. People are like, what are you talking about? Wow. Um, but eventually I started to 
to find people who were willing to work with me. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and I, and I, and I think that the, the other thing that was transformative is, um, we did a Kickstarter campaign that actually went kind of viral and we ended uh, up raising over $212,000. Holy smokes. And, um, yeah, which was amazing. Cause I, I was sort of intending on making a much smaller film that, um, I would just edit myself and probably post online. Like that was the beginning wow. of, of this. And, wow. And no, raising that kind of money for a documentary film. Uh, that's a game changer for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a game changer. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen again. Like who's going to raise that much money again? Like yeah, how long will right. it take for someone else to come along and raise that um, for a film about chronic fatigue syndrome? And yeah. so I um, I, I knew, you know, suddenly I was like, okay, I, I, I have to, this needs to be a bigger film and it needs to be a global film and it needs to be a film that can travel and really do work anywhere in the world and needs to be universal in that way. So, so that's really when I started to then reach out and find people in, in the UK and in Denmark who who, uh, could help. And so I connected with one of our producers, Lindsay Dryden through, um, Sheffield doc fest. Okay. Yeah. um, Of course. Cause she does a lot of work on kind of disability, um, and kind of, you know, women's strong films and, um, uh, and, uh, and, and then found, um, gosh, I'm not even, I think also through a producer in New York, found a, found my way through probably four hops, uh, you know, to, to our team in Denmark. Mm, and, mm. but it was through the Kickstarter campaign that Debbie Hoffman, who is an amazing filmmaker, mm. um, found me and reached out and said, I really want to help you. And she, um, she did, um, uh, she edited Milk, um, which won an Oscar. Right. Um, I'm sorry, the, the Times of Harvey Milk, and right. um, she uh, directed Long Night's Journey into Day and Complaints mm. of a Dutiful Daughter, which were both nominated, and has made many, many other incredible films, um, and also mentored a lot of people. And yeah. she really grabbed my hand and took it strongly. And I think that having that kind of um, uh, you know, super, super um, uh, experienced and talented filmmaker um, in as part of this process really kind of changed everything and, and allowed me to meet the people that I needed to meet to be able to, um, you know, find our U.S. team and and uh, um, uh, and and find my way to, to Trish Gillespie and and uh, and and Alyssa Namias, our other producers. Okay. You know, I think working with her and then working with these crews has been this constant challenge of trying to figure out you know from a process perspective at a technical perspective you know how do you do this when you're when you're this sick how do you do this when everyone you're working with is all around the world and then how do you do this when the people you're filming themselves like that they themselves have limitations right and the act of filming them actually hurts them so it was it was hard it was definitely a process to to kind of um figure out how to had a fighter way to do that um, during yeah. production for my listeners a lot of what jen is referencing here is there are a lot of shots a lot of interviews with people around the world and jen wasn't present at in the room at that location um you were doing a lot of this remotely so if you could help us understand sort of paint a picture for us jen what that looked like from a technical standpoint doing a shoot like that conducting an interview and filming an interview remotely the way that you did we started using fairly on an ipad teleprompter which um you know can also be used to create a kind of like Errol Morris style 
um, eye contact. Exactly. That's, it. that's looking, exactly what I thought. Yeah. So people looking, it's a, it's a poor man, a poor man's Interatron. The Interatron. Um, that's right. Yeah. And so, so it, it it's, um, people are looking straight into the lens, yeah. you know, and I think he uses it a lot because he's kind of, in some ways I feel like he's constantly commenting on his perspective on the people he's interviewing. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. You know, and so they're constantly <laughs> the kind of self revealing and it's very much like interview his behavior. And so this was using the someone in a totally different way where yes. it was really about that intimacy because you know all the time that uh, the, the people that I'm interviewing are talking to me and they're talking to me while I'm in bed. And so, um, um, we, you know, I knew that I wanted that from the beginning in part because I just, I just, I never liked the kind of like, um, um, I don't know. I, I every other style, every other way of shooting an interview, I just find I just always found a little bit disconnecting, and mm. and so with the director that, to like, one like, side of the camera, and, yeah, and the interviewee, yeah, no, exactly. And yeah, I'm like, looking I don't across camera, I get it, wanna, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I, um, and so I knew that aesthetically, I liked that, um, but um, I didn't know that it was also going to be really practical. So the beginning when we started oh. shooting, we did some sort of interviews, kind of studio interviews in New York, and I lived an hour away in Princeton, and so. Um, we would drive out um, uh, that hour, and I was really, really sick at that point. And mm. so um, it was hard to get there. And then I would get there, I would be kind of reclining the whole day, interviewing people from like an adjacent room because you yeah. can't be in the same room for sound reasons. Right. Um, uh, and uh, and also because it'd be strange for the person being interviewed. But I'd be in the next room, and um, uh, you know, and we would shoot for twelve hours because um, I didn't have any money and wanted to use all of the time. And, um, uh, and then like I would go back home and I would be essentially laid up for the next 29 days yeah. and, <laughs> and, uh, and so we'd shoot one day a month and it would take six months to get six days. Oh, and, wow. um, I, I, yeah, I mean, my husband for, you know, a long time kind of questioned whether it was killing me, oh, <laughs> essentially making me worse to, to doing this. And it, it dawned on me, I don't need to be in the next room. I could just stay home and I can, um, you know, conduct these interviews really anywhere in the world um, and, and Skype in and have a, right. have a crew there. And so um, and so that's what we started doing. And then I, I had one shoot where um, I, it just did not work out. Um, actually, our first shootout, I was just like, this is nothing like what I thought I said, just said what, what I thought I said to the the DP or like what I imagined in my head. And so I realized I need a way to really be in the room and see what's being filmed as it's being filmed. And so I found a, um, this device called a Teradac, which is, um, takes the HDMI stream out of, um, uh, you know, any camera, um, uh, compresses it and, and converts it and allows you to stream to the internet. And it's used by, you know, like high school TV, uh, uh, production, you know, and, and also like local TV as a sort of alternative satellite. Um, and, and so I started using that and it allowed me to watch like with the, you know, 10, 30 second delay, um, what was being shot, okay, okay. um, by the camera, um, you know, again, anywhere in the world. So there's a scene in the film where I'm watching a sunset and our, our, um, <laughs> our DP in Denmark puts a, you know, a car mount on the, on the hood of his car and is like driving through yeah. these amazing woods at sunset. And, um, and it was, I'm watching it live and it's the first time I've seen the sun in four months. 
because I hadn't been out, I hadn't even been able to cross the threshold of my house and yeah. go into the backyard. Uh, Jennifer, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. All right, can you see it framing? All right, I'm ready. There's the sun. And somehow it's almost as good as, as actually being there. <laughs> this is so beautiful. This is incredible. I, I don't even... Jen, do you feel like your your illness has has this is part of the journey for you? This has led you to documentary filmmaking. Does that occur to you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I I've done so many different things, and um, uh, kind of leading up to this point, I feel like everything I've done has in some way prepared me. And I think, um, but you know, I so I was a uh, um, you know I was a uh, uh, a writer, an journalist. I've been kind of like an event planner. Um, I was a PhD student. Um, and, uh, but everything I did kind of, something was always missing. And I, I, I think for me, I need to, you know, I, I, I've written the first third of so many books and never finished. And I think I, I'm actually not somebody who's most creative in isolation. Like I want to be out there talking to people. I want to be collaborating with other artists and, um, and I think for me, this is the the one thing that I found that uses all of me, that calls upon all of me. And I love, you know, I also have, you know, I took photo in, in high school and had been, you know, a kind of amateur photographer my whole life. And so it's like, I love telling stories with images and I love the challenges of like being in the field and trying to figure it out. And I love, um, so I, I love producing and I love fundraising and I love editing and I love distributing. Wow, I, I love wow, all of wow. it. And I, and I, and I've always been looking for something that engages both my head and my heart, something that is intellectual and also deeply human and creative and allows me to talk to people. And I, I, um, I, I had no idea that that's what this was. And so I feel really grateful to have in some ways, you know, um, fallen into this path. Um, and found as an answer to a very different kind of problem, a very personal problem, found this this medium and this craft um, that I love. We've been having a shared conversation with doc filmmaker Jennifer Brea. Her film is Unrest, and it opens up uh, September 22nd. As of the time of this recording, that's this Friday, right, Jen? And, the, and that's in New York where you are. Um, when and how else can we see this film? So we'll, we're opening this weekend um, at the IFC Center. Um, so come out. Um, I'll be doing Q&As if you're in New York. You can also go to unrest.film um, and uh, sort of see showtimes. We're going to be opening in theaters in L.A., um, San Francisco, 
um, and in several cities across the U.S., um, as well as uh, opening in London on October 20th and doing in like a 10, a 10 or 20 city tour around around the U.K. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. And we have we also doing community screenings all over the world. So the screenings now running in Australia, Netherlands, South Africa. Um, so many, many different places to go and, and see the film um, in person with an audience. There's also, Jen, a community outreach aspect that, I, that I'd, lo- I'd love to have you mention, which is you're inviting people to host screenings. Uh, how, can they, how can they get involved with that? Yeah, so um, you can go to unrest.film and uh, uh, hit take action, and it'll tell you how to host a community screening. Um, you can fill out a form and someone will be in touch. Um, and we really, you know, the, the theatrical part is so important, um, but so are the community and the campus screenings. And so we, we really want to bring the film into spaces um, to start conversations about, about this disease, about, about um, uh, uh, you know, chronic illness and invisible illness. And so we're hoping to bring it to medical schools, to um, uh, programs and, uh, uh, and scientific departments at universities. Um, into private companies, um, libraries, churches, really anywhere you can grab some seats and throw yeah. up a screen, you know, and and, uh, and and view a film together. I think it's it's so powerful that emotional experience of, mm. of, of being with others um, and watching a film like this. So um, I hope people can see it. And we're also going to be doing um, some limited kind of ticketed events um, that are virtual. So uh, oh, if wow. you live in Chicago and you are homebound um, because you have ME or because you have any disability, um, you can actually um, buy a virtual ticket and screen the film at home at the same time that people are watching it in the theater. So we're hoping that that people with disabilities can experience the theatrical part. Because I I didn't want everyone to have to wait until it's on DVD. Um, And so um, there'll be ways to engage with the film virtually as well. Way to go, Jen. Way to go. Thank That's you. Unbelievable, unbelievable journey. Uh, I'm honored to have had this conversation with you. And um, wow, I, I hope everybody sees this film. The film is Unrest. I've been speaking with Jen Brea. Jen, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. It's been quite an honor. Thank you, Chris. This has been wonderful. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live.